that what we do here tonight um, would be pleasing to you. We pray, Father, that this very um, difficult subject that often leaves a lot of us confused and sometimes feeling uh, like that we have no ability to tell someone about you because this question may come up. I pray, Father, that you would um, take this information, this truth that is in your word, and just implant it into our hearts and give us confidence, Lord, that even though we may not know all the answers, and that's all of us, Lord, all of us have things that we can learn and things that we do not know. But, Lord, would you just instill in us confidence that because you have saved us, We do have a testimony and we do have a story and we do have truth because we have you and you have us. And Father, we thank you for Kathy and all that she's done, uh, Lord, in spearheading the effort to get these chairs. I pray, God, that you would give her comfort, that you would give her peace and that you would, um, uh, Father, help her to recover um, quickly. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, here we come to the subject of the Trinity. You guys ready for this? All right, so we've got a few minutes to do that. But before we jump in, you should have received one of these. And we need to do something. If you have a pen, um, let's go ahead and do something very important here. You should see on the left bottom hand side, the box of illustrations, quote, inadequate though helpful. What I want you to do is go ahead and draw a big X through that box. One of the quickest and most deadly things that we can ever do with the Trinity is to give bad illustrations. Now this is the classic symbol depicting the Trinity. We're going to just go through this very briefly. Notice in the center we have the circle God. Okay? Alright? The Son. Right there. The Son is God. Now when we say God, we don't mean God the Father specifically. Okay? Often in our church life when we say God, we, we exclude Jesus, we exclude the Holy Spirit. What, what I want you to do on your sheet, this would be very helpful. By God, just put a forward slash and write the word deity. Deity is all that God is. It means God's essential properties, His attributes. In fact, He is God. Okay? So the Son is deity, the Son is God, but the Son is not the Holy Spirit, different person. The Holy Spirit is deity, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the same person as the Father. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. So the center circle we have, when we think in terms of God, we should think in terms that God the Father, God the Son, hold the Holy Spirit as God. Okay, now, already we're confused, okay? That was on purpose. So often when we hear things like that, we say, well, I've got to find something that makes sense. So even preachers have been guilty of this. These are called bad illustrations. Okay, how many of you have ever heard the Trinity is like an egg? If you've ever heard that before, let me, let me see your hand. Just a few? Well, okay, man. We've got some uh, pristine area here. It's normally described that God, is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is like an egg. You've got the shell, right? The yolk and the yellow. But the problem with this is that is the shell of the same stuff as the yolk? No, you've got big differences. So this would be, you can go ahead and write this down on your sheet, uh, an old heresy called monarchianism, which means that God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son um, are made up of different stuff. It's 
don't, uh, don't use that illustration. How many of you have ever heard this before? Um, the Trinity is like water. Okay, it can be in a solid, a liquid, or a gas. Have you ever heard that? Let's okay. Here's a problem. This is called modalism, which means that God simply wears a different mask, right? Like when God reveals himself as the father, it means God has the father mask on. When he reveals himself as the son, he puts on the son mask. When he reveals himself through the Holy Spirit, he's putting on his Holy Spirit mask. That simply means that God is, um, how many of you remember Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? Okay, all right. And this God is a huge cosmic Power Ranger, okay? Don't use this because it commits the fatal error of modalism, all right? Uh, Another one here would be pants. This is just weird. Um, In fact, I think we may even have... No, we don't have this on here. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord they didn't include this. Often, here's how it goes, all right? Pants. One piece of clothing, quote-unquote, but at the bottom... There's that leg, and it's not the same as that leg, but at the top, they're the same. So that explains the Trinity. Okay, if you do that, if you do that, you will make Jehovah's Witnesses more Jehovah's Witness, right? You will make nominal, right? We'll make nominal uh, non-Christians very dedicated non-Christians. So we don't want to use the pants, all right? God is not pants. Um, Another one is what we have in this sheet, like this. If I were a father... I could say, I am one person, but I am a father, but I'm also a son, and I'm also a brother. So this explains the Trinity. This once again has the problem of modalism, because what I'm doing is basically doing the hop-skip maneuver, trying to fulfill different roles, you see. All right, so here is the orthodox position. I would write this down, okay? This one sentence right here was, um, came about from the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. And it is, God is the Trinity, the triune God, the Godhead, one substance but three persons. Um, this would be, or in the original language here, one usia, one substance, in three hypostases, three persons. So that literally means that Going back to our egg illustration, it would be wrong because God is not made up of different stuff. Okay, God is unified. God is unity. So one substance, three persons. And this is a distinctly Christian doctrine. Millard Erickson said, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we encounter one of the truly distinctive doctrines of Christianity. So the fact that we believe in the Trinity sets us apart from people who believe that there are many gods and sets us apart from, let's say, Muslims who would argue for a strict Unitarian monotheism. It means God is one, 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 one. There can't ever be um, any other addition to that. So often, um, this is actually at Best Buy a few years ago, there was a guy behind me and I started witnessing to the guy and this guy was uh, was a Jehovah's Witness, big guy, all right? And he began to get very incensed. He's like, well, you're a Christian or you're, you're not a, you're a Baptist. You believe in the Trinity. Yes, sir. Trinity is not in the Bible. He got so fired up that he began to do this on my chest. Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't know John Jitsu back then, right? We have been a takedown in Best Buy. I was like, who is this crazy guy? The Trinity is not in the Bible. I'm like, you know, your mom's not in the Bible. But I didn't think that that was, you know... Don't ever, don't ever use that. Um, 
often people will say, is the word Trinity in the Bible? The obvious answer is no. And they will say, well, therefore, it's not in the Bible. Um, we'll come to this a little bit later, but just to, just a little precursor. Is the word Bible in the Bible? No. But we know that the Bible is the book of books. So terminology, semantics is one thing, but substance is another thing altogether. So why does this matter? Someone may ask, why is this even a big deal? Well, number one, the Trinity determines our understanding of it, determines how you view Jesus. Okay? Is Jesus a creation? Is he a prophet? Or is he the Christ, the Son of God? If I'm jacked up on the Trinity, then I'm going to either think that Jesus is a created being, as some cults tell us that he is, like he was created by God one time, way back a long time ago, or like our, the Muslims will say, well, he's a good man, but he's only a prophet. Or, like the Bible says, he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Number two, reason why it matters. Number two, to whom are we to worship? Hmm. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's pretty big, right? That's a big deal. Number three, to whom are we to pray? That's a big deal for a person who wants to serve God. So... Um, the early church and religious marketing, often people tell us, well, didn't it take several hundred years for the church to create the doctrine of the Trinity? All right, number one, the resurrection and the lordship of Christ. Imagine if you're in the first century, you could not bring about a more revulsive doctrine than Jesus, only Jesus is Lord that's going to offend the Romans because they think that there are a lot of gods. And then you come to the philosophical Greeks and you say that he rose from the dead. Athens would have been ruled. They would have been the Athenians would were rolling on the floor because they said people don't come from the dead. Once you're dead, you're dead. There is no resurrection from the dead. You would alienate everybody in the Roman Empire. But yet the church stuck to this because this is what actually is. Number two. If the Christians were really trying to do something devious and tried to deceive the world, they would have never come up with the Trinity. Because you know what you do? Number one, you alienate all your Jews. All of them. Secondly, you're going to alienate all of the people who think that there are more than one God. You see how you lose on both hands? That if the church, because people say, well, the Christian church just formed this to try to deceive people and change the Bible... Well, the reason why people do stuff like that is to get more converts, right? I mean, I've never known of any cult or any church that says, let's have a meeting and see how we can lose as many members as we can, right? We totally want to go defunct. Well, this is something that the early church, if it had not been in the scripture, they would have never affirmed it. So here's a few uh, cults and religions who deny the Trinity. The Jehovah's Witnesses uh, believe that Michael, we've covered this already, haven't we? You guys remember this? Why does this keep coming up? Because when you study theology, you see how it matters, right? Theology is what people believe. What you believe determines where you go. It's a big deal. They believe that Jesus is a created spirit, that he is Michael the archangel who became God's son upon being baptized. When God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, it was like, boom, money bag. And God basically adopted Jesus. This is actually an old, old heresy called adoptionism. Um, secondly, the Mormons uh, believe that Jesus and Lucifer were Satan, or they were brothers, and Satan proposed a plan to force humanity to follow God. Jesus, Jesus proposed loving people to get them to follow God. Satan's plan was rejected. Jesus' plan was accepted. Now they don't get along. 
God has innumerable spirit wives, um, this is wrong. And once again, when um, Mormons try to talk to you, they believe that God has a body. Okay, They believe that every person that's born on earth is the result of a spirit union between God and his innumerable spirit wives. Well, thinking people as we are, if God is confined to a body, then when does he have time to listen to your prayers? And if you think about the number of people that are being born every minute on earth, and if every single one of those has to come from the result of God who's confined to one body and his spirit wives, it doesn't leave God time to do much else. Uh, Muslims would also say the Trinity is shirk. And I'll write that down. It's S-H-I-R-K. This is the unpardonable sin in Islam. You never associate or detract from God's, quote, oneness. Okay? God is one. That's it. But Muslims also, this is a very good tool if you're going to witness to them. They also believe that God is not bound by anything. Now, we Christians believe that it's impossible for God to lie, right? Because God said it's impossible. Is that a weakness? No, in fact, that's a strength. That's like somebody who's so good at basketball, they can never lose a game. Or a mathematician who's so good, he can never get a problem wrong. When we ask a Muslim, is God able to do anything? Absolutely. So there's nothing that's binding God at all. No. Well, is it possible that God could exist as one in three persons? Well, no. But you just said nothing was impossible for God. You see, you've got him in a catch 22, which can open the door to the gospel. And right here is a a point that will make very clear. Usually when... We talk about the Trinity, people say, but it's so difficult for me to understand, and hopefully it won't be by the time that we finish. I don't know if I can accept it. I would, and the reason why we wrote this down is so it's very clear. We must get our beliefs from Scripture first, even if we may not fully understand them. So it will be truth first, then illustrations. Amen, church? Because if we have to understand it first, If it's up to me, Christianity would be in bad shape if I had to understand everything first. So we must not reject that which we may not fully understand. So, and I would write this down. I encourage you to remember it or write it down. We must fit our minds to Scripture, not bend Scripture to fit our minds. You see the difference there? Say, you know what, even though I don't understand every single detail, I get the concept So what I'm going to do is, by faith, because Jesus has saved me, believe the Scripture first and let my mind be molded to the Scripture rather than try to mold and change the Scripture to fit my mind. Um, This is a little illustration from quantum mechanics. Uh, Walter Lewin of MIT said that quantum mechanics is very non-intuitive. This is a little law called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Imagine if we were to go really small. Really small to where even an atom would seem like planet Earth. Okay? We're going super, super small. At that level of the subatomic world, and this is, this is a crazy thought, if we've got a little tiny particle, and we try to measure that particle, even by shining light on it, it's so small that when the light hits the particle, we can either know, let's quote this, The more precisely the position is determined, the less precisely the momentum is known in this instant and vice versa. So you can either know where it is or how fast it's going. You can't know both. 
Once again, imagine something so small that a beam of light, when it hits it and the the instrument takes the measurement, it throws the particle off. So it's like, okay, it was here, and we know how fast it was going or we know where it was, but we don't know where it's going or how fast it will be going. What that means is that at the subatomic level, quantum mechanics, it's all about probabilities and not certainty. And this guy, one of the smartest... um, quantum mechanic physicist out there said, I can safely say, this is Richard Feynman, that nobody understands quantum mechanics. So if you just felt dumb, all right, like I have no idea what is going on, this is what Richard Feynman said. He said, do not keep saying to yourself, but how can it be like that? Nobody knows how it can be like that. But quantum mechanics is still the way that we have to understand the world working at the subatomic level. Now, even the fact that the smartest minds in the world don't know exactly how it's like that doesn't change it from being true. And I put the note down here, although the Trinity may seem, quote, non-intuitive, that doesn't mean that it isn't true. Amen? All right? So when you think about the toughest area of physics, quantum mechanics, top dogs in the field are saying, we don't even understand how it works, but we understand that it does. Okay? So, here we go. The question that most of us get, why didn't the church take an official stance on the Trinity for its first two centuries? Uh, Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, um, it was formed that God is a triune being. He is one, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, here's the way that we answer them. Say, do you know about the Edict of Milan? The Edict of Milan was what Constantine um, gave forth, and that was basically... Don't kill Christians anymore. Before this time, this is what you would be if you were a Christian. You would be thrown to the lions. Now, big theological councils, you know what that would have been? That would have been a kill, that would have been a massacre, right? They met underground to try to keep from getting killed. The Christians did. So you can't say that the church took several centuries to form the doctrine because this church was simply trying to survive during all that time. Does that make sense? And notice right here, you only have 12 years. It only took 12 years from the Christians becoming the most sought-after, hunted-like dog people in the Roman Empire to coming, this is so amazing, only 12 years to come from hiding down in the caves to coming together and forming one of the greatest theological councils that's ever taken place on planet earth. That is very close to being miraculous. Amen? That shows that God takes his church that has been underneath the boot of the emperor and underneath the boot of dictators and says, you know what? You can stomp it and you can try to kill it, but you will never wipe out my church. It's been said that the church is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. So that's the way that we say, say only it was only 12 years um, before that Christians were um, not killed on site, basically. Does that make sense? Does that help? Because a lot of times people who make this claim, we're not saying that we're, that we're smarter than people, but they, they ask questions. They simply don't know what they're talking about. Okay. And we're not supposed to go in like smart alecks or know-it-alls, but when we give this information, we give it in humility all right, we give it in humility, trying to lead them to Jesus, not, well, you didn't know about the Council of Milan or the Edict of Milan, did you? Boom, right? We don't want to do that, okay? Even though you may, especially if you get a really 
a really smart aleck one, you may want to pull out right that, that blackjack and that flapjack, whatever it is. That'd be kind of weird. Hit him with flapjack, right? Theological flapjack. That makes no sense. Okay? All right, we're going to move on here. Okay, so here's the biblical evidence. Number one. It is a pancake, Elena, right? That's cool. Uh, number one, uh, the unity of God. God is one. But we also find that there are three persons who are God. Now, there's no contradiction in this, as we'll see. Okay? At first, it looks like a contradiction, but we'll see it's not. Number three, there is a three-in-oneness also referred to. Uh, God is one. Here's a few verses that you can jot down. Some of these are already on your outline. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is what? No one else. So it's not God and God sub two. Uh, Isaiah 45, 5a, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. So this kind of takes care of polytheism, right? Somebody tell me, what do we mean by polytheism? I'm not sure if we've gone over that. Yes, many God, right? Awesome. Okay, cool. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is, how many? One God. one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we understand that this is for the people who would say that God is more than one. The Bible says God is one. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well, even the demons, or the demons also believe and shudder or tremble. This is a little note I'm going to make by way of application in terms of missions. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, he says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants of demons. So check out this thought that even demons are monotheists. Even demons believe in one God. Demons are not confused. So my question is, is if even demons are monotheist, if even demons believe in one God, then how twisted is polytheism? The Bible says to the Apostle Paul that polytheism is thoroughly demonic. And if you want to have some, some great illustrations of that, when Doug and Anne are back in town... India, it's a, it's a very, very, very dark place to where people sacrifice two idols in which they believe are inhabited by demons. And this goes back to the first century. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. And it's profoundly sad. And I pray that God uses us, amen church, in the future to reach people there. Alright, so, not only do I understand that God is one, but number two, we understand that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. Now, I would write a little phrase here. I would write down Godhead. Okay, I remember as a kid, <clears throat> I forget the, the, the name of the hymn, maybe some of you can remember it for me, where it says, it speaks about the Godhead three in one. I thought, Godhead? Godhead? As a kid and as a teenager, I was like, what in the, I never heard it explained, never. I was like, what is a Godhead? The Godhead speaks of God, colon, God the Father, God the Son, 
God the Holy Spirit. The Godhead, you could also write an equal sign, it is God. Everything that comprises of who God is. So, the three persons in the Godhead would be an example, Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So here's a distinguishing between the Father um, and the Son. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was not praying to himself. Okay, Jesus was not talking to himself. He was praying to the Father. John 14, 16 and 17. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is going to get a little bit ahead, but notice right here he says the Father will send the Helper. And when the Father sends the Helper, who's going to be with you forever? The Helper, but also... Ah, Isn't this good? Isn't this good to think? I, I, I hate to go to church when you never... When you never have to think, right? I think it's great that we as believers have the ability to exercise our minds because God didn't create us to be not ever thinking. Father is God. Psalm 89, 26. He will cry to me. You are my father and my God and the rock of my salvation. Isaiah 63, 16. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. The son, a distinct person. So here's how we see that um, in a sense. I don't like to use this term, but let, let's say a distinction. Okay, John seven thirty nine. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here you see a distinction between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Son is a distinct person. John seventeen one through five. From the Father, so when Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Wow! Mm, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with whom? Uh-huh. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Ooh, all right. So those who say that Jesus was a creation before the world was. That's a little code word for before everything that is ever was, which means a long time ago, whether you hold the old earth or young earth. Jesus is God. This is, to me, the most interesting aspect of the study of the Trinity. The New Testament writers were faced with a difficult problem of affirming that Jesus is God without saying that Jesus is the Father. So how do you do that? Right here, I want everybody to say, Ha Theos. And we just said, literally, the God. Okay? In Greek, theos, for God, theism, theology, atheism, one who believes that there is no God. So in the Greek New Testament, the word for God is theos. But 
If we were to go back in time and find the Hebrews who were losing their ability to communicate in that language, what they did is they made a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. All right? So they got Hebrew, translated into Greek. You've got the Old Testament. It's now written in Greek. <clears throat> Guess one of the words that they used for God or Yahweh. They used kurios. Mm, very interesting. Well, if you're a New Testament writer and you're trying to communicate that Jesus is deity, Jesus is God, that he's distinct from the Father, I would write this verse down because this, I think most of us are probably familiar with this verse, but have not understood how vitally important it is. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 13. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this is interesting. I would write down, and if you've got your Bible open, when it says Jesus as, as what? Lord. Lord. Okay. If, you, if you've got a, a study Bible, it will tell you that verse 13 is a verbatim quote from the Old Testament in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 32. Okay? And if you pick up a copy of the Greek Bible, the Old Testament, the Septuagint. I had one professor, he was um, from Mississippi, and he called it the Septuagint. And so, Septuagint, Septuagint, that'll work fine. Guess who the Lord is there? It's Kyrios. So the Old Testament designation for God, the word in the Greek Old Testament that was translated from the Hebrew for Joel 2.32, and the people are told, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of Kyrios will be saved. Paul, the New Testament writer, says, whoever calls upon the name of Curios, Jesus, will be saved. And believe that Theos, God, raised him from the dead. This is a code. It's a code to us, but not really for them. They're like, okay, so if Jesus is Curios, then Jesus is not a creation. Jesus is not a prophet. What else could he be? Hmm, what do you guys think? The Savior, the Christ, the Son of God. Here's another very interesting verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, <clears throat> verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says that Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you have the Trinity in that one verse. This is very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is but one Theos, one God. The Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Curios, one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So you have Theos and Curios used in the same verse to say that Jesus is deity. And also Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. We will not read all of that. We're going to read the first and the last but this is often taken by uh, cults to tell us that Jesus was a creation. Verse 15 in Colossians chapter 1 says, Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now let's stop right here. 
Um, somebody tell me from your Old Testament studies, what was maybe one of the um, blessings or responsibilities of being a firstborn? Anybody remember? All the possessions. Okay, very good. All the possessions. Any any other? Birthright. Birthright, yes. In other words, when you were firstborn, it didn't necessarily, like when they said he's the firstborn, yeah, in one sense it referred to like Jacob, uh, or, or rather Esau, who sold his birthright to Jacob. But what it really referred to was that they owned it all. So when the New Testament writers use the phrase the firstborn, it doesn't refer back to some time to where God and Mrs. God were there in the hospital and they gave forth birth to their firstborn, okay? That's ludicrous. That's, that's, that's almost to the point, if you would have told Paul, if some of these people would have said Jesus was the firstborn, Paul would have said blasphemy. Because Jesus always was. So when we see, all right, does that make sense? Firstborn doesn't refer to genetic birth, but it refers to full responsibility. I think that, to me, that's very helpful. Then we come over to verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. This is the Greek word fullness, the word pleroma, which means to be absolutely full. Which means that when Jesus, this is so cool, when Jesus came as a man, it means that Jesus was not 99% deity. Or 99% God. Catch that? That means that Jesus wasn't God minus something. Or God to the minus point, point, point one power. Okay? It means that all of the fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus. So that Jesus was truly the God-man who was able to save us from our sins. Uh, John 10.30, Jesus says, I am a father, are one. And this is what uh, John Gill says in his... Um, Bible commentary. Jesus was saying, not in person, for the Father must be a distinct person from the Son, and the Son a distinct person from the Father, and which is further manifest from the use of the verb plural, I and my Father, we are one. That is, in nature and in essence and perfections, particularly in power. That means what Jesus is saying is that in our essence, right? Once again, we're rejecting the egg, okay? We can make up some t-shirts, Rocky Mount Baptist Church, shows an egg, so it says no to, say no to the egg, right? And have 85 West Church Street, you know, 11 a.m. Sunday. We could do that, okay? What he's saying is that in their perfections, the essence, and in their power, uh, some of y'all, it's, I guess it rolls for some. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, hey, Jeff, can we do the pants weird ones then? Yeah, we, we probably we probably never want to mention that again. Yeah, especially about the about the Trinity. But um, John John fourteen verse nine and ten: the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, "Show us the Father"? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, or that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? You can't get from that verse that Jesus is sub God. You get from that, that verse that John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Help me out, church. And the Word was God. <clears throat> also get, I think all of this is amazing. I think I've said this twice before, but this to me is particularly cool. John uh, chapter 20, 
uh, in verse 28, when doubting Thomas, remember he said, unless I put my hand and side and see the holes, the scars, I won't believe. You know what he literally said here? Ha kurios mu kai ha theos mu. Literally, the Lord of me and the God of me. Our English translations translate it, my Lord and my God. You know what he said about Jesus? He said that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus, you are everything. That's powerful for the deity of Christ. And a lot of times our our English translations don't pick that up. Not because they're wrong. It's just because it's the nature of language. Also see the Holy Spirit is God. Um, We're we're going to go through a couple more of these. and We're going to look at some illustrations that I think help understand the Trinity. John 14, 26. But the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 16, 14. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. Um, The word, there's a little idiom within the Greek New Testament. It should be, they, they have feminine, masculine, and neuter for, for all of the words. It should be, um, when referring to the Holy Spirit here, spirit is neuter, okay? But John deliberately changes, he violates the rules of grammar in the Greek, and he makes the word for spirit, Holy Spirit here, masculine. So a big deal, what does that mean? Exactly. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a force. All right. Like when Obi-Wan or whoever's maybe the force be with you wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit. All right. Holy Spirit's not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. I think that's awesome. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, you not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart, and you have not lied to man, but to whom? So the Bible says the Holy Spirit is God. Once again, we're thinking of God in terms of deity. Okay. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know at Jesus' baptism, that's an excellent picture of... Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity showing up on the scene. Um, also, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make all the disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That when you get God, you get God. Who is God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Get that? See, these, these verses are so powerful. When you get God, you get every everything. Okay, We're not going to get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to save that for, for another time. This is a very, very uh, good verse um, for that topic. I actually had a conversation a couple weeks ago. Very, very, very interesting. And by the way, if you've got friends who are in cults or, or sisters and brothers and other gospel-believing denominations, talk to them. Don't be afraid, just talk to them, and it'll stretch you. And maybe, hey, look, I'm not perfect, so there are things that we can definitely work on as well. Not this, all right? This is true. This is a non, non-optional, all right? And we'll say, well, Pastor Jeff said when Trinity is not important. It is, absolutely. So, all right, um, yeah. Uh, three in oneness. This, to me, and you actually have this on here on your sheet. I would mark 
highlight, underline Genesis 126. Um, God said, singular, let us make man in our plural image. Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? This is not God in the council of the gods. It's not God in Perseus. All right? this, is, this is God. But why do we have God as one and plurality? Hmm. Maybe could it be because God is triune? We've gone through that. Here's the orthodox position as, as we said before. Um, this is also from the Council of Constantinople. One substance, three persons. One usia, three hypostases. All right. One illustration here would be time and space. Time, and this is, this is a thing too for you nerds, nobody really knows what time is. Okay? We know that it's some type of a movement, but that's really basically, basically a movement of something. So before there was something, there wasn't really any time. Right? Okay? So go, go home and talk to your dog about that tonight. Okay? Alright, so we've got past, present, and future. It's all time. Um, you can also illustrate it by space, height, width, and depth. But here we're going to go back to a little retro illustration. Um, you guys remember Super Mario Brothers, okay? Maybe some, all right? So, they believe that the Spirit of God, the, the Old Testament references to the Spirit of God that came on the prophets was God. It's almost a form of modalism in a sense. They believe that just God sent His Spirit. But it's hard to explain that Unless you go into modalism or unless you go to the Trinity. But that's a great, great question. Okay. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever played any old Nintendo game, you know that it's just up, down. But it's two-dimensional, right? It's pure, I mean, you, you're, just, you're just there, okay? Just like the karate games, you're able to just do this and this. Imagine if you had lived and grown up in a two-dimensional world. And then you were told that there was something such as a cube in which there could be six squares in one. Imagine how that would blow your brain. You're like, well, that's dumb. Obviously, we all know about a cube. But imagine if you had never even heard or even conceived or ever... I mean, imagine how that would seem. It would seem very, very difficult, maybe even impossible. And this is the point that C.S. Lewis makes in his book, Mere Christianity, if you're living in a two-dimensional world. <clears throat> um, it's really hard when you're trying to illustrate the, the Trinity, because what you're doing is you're... What, the difficulty is we're trying to represent an immaterial spirit with a physical illustration, right? Remember what Jesus said? That God is what? Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So here's the difficulty when we talk about eggs or pants or, or water or gas or anything like that. When we talk about physical things, it's hard to do that because God is spirit. Um, one way that we could kind of open the window to understand the Trinity is that God Himself is spirit, so the social and the personal domain then is closer to God's basic nature than is the realm of our material objects. And this is what Millard Erickson says. Um, something I would write down here that really helps if you've got somebody that's really trying to push you in a corner about the Trinity, well, give me this, give me this. Just say, an infinite God cannot fully be described by a finite illustration. Okay? We can totally understand pants. 
And we might not understand, you know, some people say, well, I don't understand why the young people shoot them full of holes and then wear them, or why some people, you know, kind of wear their pants but don't really wear their pants. I don't know how all that works, okay? There's some things that we may not fully understand, but we can understand pants, we understand water, we understand eggs, okay? But if God is totally infinite and God, then it's probably not possible for us to bring out a little test tube and be like, okay, this is God. This, this test tube, this illustration, this picture totally, w- without any questions, explains who God is. And the skeptic will say, well, your God's not really impressive. Because I understood that in like 0.2 seconds. In fact, I'm dumber now, having known about your God. See you later, right? I'm going to walk through this. This is a very, very interesting point that Erickson raises in his, in his book, Christian Theology. And this is from Augustine in his book, The Trinity. He says, and I quote, As a self-conscious person, I may engage in internal dialogue with myself. You ever done that? I may take different positions and interact with myself. Furthermore, I am a complex human person with multiple roles and responsibilities in dynamic, which means not static, interplay with one another. As I consider what I should do in a given situation, the husband, the father, the seminary professor, and the United States citizen that together constitute me may mutually inform one another. Then the skeptic says, but you don't understand. When we talk to each other, when we talk inside, bro, I've got crazy talk going on, right? (laughs) Have you ever been driving down the road being like, I hope that the crazy Jeff doesn't win this, this argument, okay? Here's how this illustration is good when you apply it to God. Because the relationship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit within the Godhead, they don't have craziness like we do. Amen? They don't have sin. They don't have pride. They don't have shortcoming. They don't have impatience. They don't have frustration towards other people that causes our internal relationship to be all messed up. With God, it's absolutely perfect. Then there's some people who say, you heard this? Well, God just got lonely and created the world so he can have some friends. Okay? Um, if, if we've ever said that, we should probably stop. Because the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God would have never had to create anyone because there's the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit within the Godhead. And God doesn't need anything. In fact, God has a relationship with himself within the Godhead. What's that? Um, no, modalism would be God appears in different forms. Um, and the picture here is basically the first one. What we have is a distinction in persons. But normally when we think of persons, we think of individuals, right? Okay. Per- persons in, in this sense would be, would be a, a distinction to where... And once again, every, every person who's tried to explain this, that's a good question, Susan, to the nth degree has been declared a heretic. All right? So, um, that outright. So, we're like, oh no, we're confused and we're heretics. So. <laughs> but here what we would have is, is what makes up God, capital G-O-D, for saying it in English, would be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And within, within this, you have the Trinity. And that's really the best way I can explain it. But that's a great, that's, that's a great question. But it, w- it wouldn't be modalism because, modalism because God's not uh, uh, doing different 
different things with different masks. When, uh, when God prayed, did he pray that? When Jesus prayed, did he pray that? He prayed to the Father. But he is Father. He, he's not, he's not um, right here. Jesus, Jesus is, is not the, right. But, right. And I think, I think Alan, one thing that, that's particularly hung me up over the years when you think about the Trinity is when we say God in our Baptist churches, a lot of times, I don't know if this has been your experience, but we exclude God the Spirit, we exclude God the Son, right? We think of God as God and then there's Jesus. When we, and I, th- this has really helped me. This is from a class two semesters ago, all right? Um, actually, no, in the spring. That when we think of God, we should think of the Trinity. And within the Trinity, we have God the Father. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So when we think of God, we don't think excluding Jesus. Well, I can't do that because it's that. But um, when we don't exclude the Holy Spirit. But God is, I guess you could say, um, comprised of God the Father, God the Son, Holy, Holy Spirit, all having the same essence, once again rejecting the egg, but they have different roles. Well, you know, the Bible tells that you pray to Jesus because you don't know how to pray. Mm. You don't know what they ask for. Mm-hmm. Yes. Need, I guess for lack of a better interpreted so God understands what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, and that's an awesome point about Jesus being the mediator of our faith. Absolutely. Here's, here's a statement that's, that's helped, and this comes from a very smart person, Millard Erickson, who's written a lot of theology books. And uh, He said, try to explain it, and you'll... Now, once again, we're, we're not saying try to understand it, okay? We're talking about explain it to where God could be reduced to a formula. Try to explain it, and you'll lose your mind. But you try to deny it, and you'll lose your soul. And the not denying it is where we get cults. And it's profoundly sad. So we'll close with this. Um, with this the conclusion. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all share the same nature. And that is divinity. Once again, we're rejecting the Greek concept of there are divines and God-men and, and so forth. What you find in divinity is everything that God is. The, the DNA of God. Action points and then we'll go. The Trinity separates true Christianity from cults. That's why this matters. Number two, Jesus' coming to earth is an act of grace and we can be adopted into God's family. The Trinity shows the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to where there's no family feud like the cheesy old show. You guys remember? Number three, it helps to highlight the different members of the Trinity and the plan of redemption. Number four, it helps us understand the family. Ephesians chapter 5. If God exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there's no distinction, there's no arguing, there's everything fitting together, then maybe there's hope for my family if I get God into my life. And a couple of minutes over. Um, do you, are there any, any questions? If you guys need to, to head out right now, you, you can. But are there, any, are there any questions? I know there's probably a bunch, but we'll take a... Susan? Nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, and actually what Susan has, has just noted 
is the most debated verse. Were you, were you finished? I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Genesis chapter, chapter uh, 6 verses 1 through 4 is the most debated, most widely distinct views in the whole uh, Bible. But the sons of God here. Um, let's see here. Do you have in, in your version what's it what's it say in verse or what's it say in verse four? The the Nephilim yeah. Nephilim okay all right yeah okay all right okay there, there's basically um, if I can remember it there's three views here. One view would be that the sons of God, um, there's no commentator that believes that this is Jesus or Jesus had brothers, that the, the sons of God were um, angels, and like a fallen, fallen angels, and they came and they cohabitated with human women and they produced offspring. And the word, the Hebrew word for Nephilim uh, literally means the fallen ones. Now, some of your, if you have the King James, it'll translate it giants. And that's because when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, Nobody knows what Nephilim are. They just know they're the fallen ones. So guess what the translators for the Greek Old Testament came up with? The word gigantes, or gigantes, giants. These could be these, so. They also could be the sons of Seth, from Adam to Noah. Um, that they're talking about. Or it could be. Yeah, that's... Okay, okay, I thought the sons of... Who's saying? Yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Adam to Noah. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the, the one of these would be that it's it's this angel human hybrid that produced these crazy people, and some people say that's where we get Greek mythology from this race, and that's why the human race got really corrupt because you had demon DNA and human DNA running all over the place. Um, second one would be that the sons of God did depict. Uh, the line of Seth, the godly line, and the daughters of men depicted the line of Cain. So here you've got Christian choir boys uh, marrying in with not-so-nice people. And then the wickedness um, got into the world. And also, there's an argument that says the sons of God referred to, um, like uh, you could say, warlords who took women by force and, and had children. But really, it's John MacArthur holds the first view. Um, there's not many people who hold that. Um, I just on that, I could tell you what I believe, but it really doesn't. It really doesn't matter. Um, and this this doesn't really this wouldn't have a bearing on, on the Trinity per se, um, because the sons of, of God, or like in other words, your view one of those three is not going to affect your your view of, of the Trinity. So, but a good question, yeah. Yeah, in fact, we're going we're gonna to come to some of that, I think, in a few weeks when we study Genesis 1, because it's the whole creation aspect. That's a very interesting study. I'm sorry. If that's confusing, that's because it is. But we're going to hopefully unconfuse it more. Is that, does that confuse your question? No. Okay. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Um, well, thank you guys for coming. Um, if, you, if you have some questions, maybe we can pick it up uh, next time we, we meet. But one thing in closing, I'll leave you with this thought provoker and then we'll pray. The Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is plural. Remember back in Afghanistan, the Mujahideen? 
Okay? In Arabic and Hebrew, im is plural. <clears throat> the word for Jerusa. Mm. There are some scholars who believe that, and it's also a plural of respect in Hebrew. It's not necessarily saying that there are all these gods, but it could be one of the ways letting us know that when you say Elohim, that that opens the door for when the New Testament writers told us about the Trinity. And also, when you see the word Jerusalem, you remember in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the New Jerusalem. Doesn't mean conclusive. Don't teach it. Time Sunday school teachers don't make it a hardcore issue in your classes. But I think it's very interesting. Let's pray and then let's go clog our veins at Hardee's. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for letting us have time to study this. And Lord, I pray that we will not be overwhelmed um, by what we may have questions with. But uh, Lord, would you help us to continue to study, but to grab a hold of that which we do know and that which your word is very clear on. We thank you, God, so much for um, everyone who's made time in their busy week to come out and prepare themselves um, for the sake of them and for their families and their children and their friends to rightly divide the word of truth. I pray that you would bless each and every one in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all so much.